Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Let Me Tell You a Story. How's it going, babe? Good. Don't cover your mouth with your hand. Good. <laughs> and you? I'm all right. <laughs> I'm okay. Can't complain. Can't complain. So we are back tonight with a really great story. There's not a lot of loop-de-loops and twisty turns in this one. It's pretty straightforward. Very interesting nonetheless. I think you'll enjoy it. Okay. You gonna give me any hints? Gangs. Oh, okay. Does that make you excited? You like a little gang action? Uh-huh. All right, babe. Are you ready? Steady? <laughs> I'm trying to get you like excited. You're like picking your ear. Yeah, I got stuff in it. Okay, that's disgusting. Behind. Let me see. Ooh, let me get it. I'm flaking. It was a good flake. So disgusting. Yeah, it's disgusting. That's how much you know I love you. No, you love picking shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Even if I didn't love you, I'd pick your shit. (laughs) Right. Very, very true. All right, here we go. In the early morning hours of October third, nineteen ninety four. A frantic call came into the Eugene, Oregon Police Department. On the other end of the line, a desperate mother, Janice Itora, begged for authorities to respond to her home because her son, 18-year-old Aaron Itora, was seemingly fighting for his life after being attacked in his own bed. Just hours before, nothing had seemed amiss or weird at all when Aaron Itora and his girlfriend, Carrie Barkley, retreated to Aaron's bedroom for the evening. At around 10 p.m., Aaron's sister answered a phone call. On the other end was an unidentified girl who asked if Aaron was home. Aaron's sister told the caller her brother was there, but he was busy, but if she'd like... But before she could offer to take a message, the caller just hung up. And when Aaron asked who had been on the phone, his sister informed him that it was a girl, but she didn't identify herself, and then she just hung up the phone. So Aaron headed back to his bedroom. Now, at around 1.30 a.m., Aaron's mother, Janice, awoke to blood-curdling screams. And when she ran through her house towards her son's bedroom, she discovered the screams were those of Aaron's girlfriend, who, still in bed next to Aaron, was in full panic mode while her boyfriend lay next to her, bleeding profusely. When authorities arrived, they discovered a gravely injured Aaron suffering from a single gunshot wound to his head. Though he was still breathing, it was obvious that the teen was fading and fast. So while he was rushed to the hospital, authorities got to work on their investigation. Is it weird that your 18-year-old son is sleeping in a bed with his girlfriend? To be honest with you, I had the exact same thought. Because I literally took a boyfriend home to Illinois when I was 21. 20, 21, and we slept in separate beds in my parents' house because right. my parents <laughs> <laughs> my parents wouldn't allow it. Then again, I feel like now that we have a kid, ever since we've had a kid, my parents like view it very differently, you know? Yeah, I'm yeah. also like a man. <laughs> I was also 22 when we met. It's a little bit different. And you were 35, and they thought you were creeping on me. Yeah. Joke was on them because you were creeping on me. (laughs) (laughs) Nice try. (laughs) All right. So uh, police got to work on their investigation. 
Aaron Itora was the oldest of five kids to mom Janice, who he often helped out with babysitting duties while she worked two jobs to support their big family. Considered a kind and gentle soul in literally every article you read and every podcast on this case, everyone says he was a kind and gentle soul. And I think it's just repeated so much because people just really like this kid a lot. He was a good kid. And he was an artist, an aspiring artist. And he was also an outspoken activist against the growing gang activity in Eugene, Oregon. Back to our crime scene at the Itora house. Itora, Itora. To me, it sounds like it's I-T-U-R-R-A, like Itura. No idea. Me neither. I've never heard that last name before. For police, the fact that Aaron's girlfriend, Carrie, had been completely unharmed while lying inches away from Aaron, who on the flip side received a gunshot wound to his head, screamed either, okay, one, a targeted attack with a clear but yet like undetermined motive, obviously, right? Or two, Carrie has to be involved, yeah. right? Authorities' search for the gun used in the attack were fruitless, but they were able to cover a piece of. They were able to recover a piece of the bullet. Now, without a weapon at the scene, it didn't seem likely that Carrie could be involved unless she shot him in the head and then ran out of the house, disposed of the gun somewhere far enough away that police didn't find it in their searches of for evidence. Right? Then ran back to the house, snuck back in, got back into bed, and then started screaming. Right? which just seems like just a bit too much. Like, it seems like a little far-fetched that she would have done all of that. So they already were like, okay, well, there's no gun outside. It's not like it's anywhere on this property. It's not in the house anywhere. We can't find a single weapon that could have been used to shoot him. Likely it wasn't her. She's not involved. But they had to be sure Of course. So they questioned her extensively and between her interview with police and also after she was tested for a gunshot residue and that came back as a negative, they were pretty confident that Carrie was definitely not involved in her boyfriend's shooting. She did, however, have some information for authorities. Carrie had been startled out of her sleep from the sound of the gunshot, obviously. And as she came to, she believed that she saw two males running out of Aaron's bedroom. She could not identify either assailant, telling police that both had bandanas covering their faces as they fled. Aaron spent the rest of the night, technically the morning, at the hospital, but his condition deteriorated quickly before he was ultimately placed on life support. When scans showed that he had no brain activity, the decision was made to pull the plug. An 18-year-old Aaron Atora was pronounced dead later that very same day, October 3rd, 1994. And authorities now had a homicide on their hands, so they began digging into Aaron's life, paying particular attention to his work with anti-gang activism, thinking that it wouldn't be that far-fetched at all if his work in the community had made him some dangerous enemies along the way. Because looking into his life and speaking to those close to him, it was obvious that this wasn't a kid who had any known enemies, right? Like, everyone was like, dude, everyone loved Aaron. There's literally nobody that we can think of at all that would have any reason to hurt him, especially in this way. So they're like, all right, well, what's the one area of life that could produce some enemies? And that's the fact that he had really close ties with the gang, the gangs of Eugene, because he was working with a lot of kids in the area. And a lot of those kids were already affiliated with gangs through like siblings or friends or whatever. And it was a really bad problem in Eugene, Oregon at, the, at this time. 
So he had been really, really dedicated to his anti-gang activism, and he teamed up with another outspoken activist named Mary Thompson, known in Eugene as the Gang Mom, or Moms, to the kids on the street. Mary's own son had fallen victim to the gang life, helping form Eugene's very own offshoot of the Crips gang when he was just 13 years old. How gangs started really fascinates the hell out of me, to be honest, but to avoid going on some long-ass tangent, because there's a lot of history with gangs, I'll just give you a quick history lesson into the gang, okay? Um, now, the exact history varies depend yeah. varies depending on who you ask, but I got this information from the U.S. Justice System website. <laughs> Yeah, okay. The U.S. Department of Justice. Yeah, like okay? their Wikipedia page? No, it's their website. The gang history page? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. So the Crips were founded in Los Angeles in 1969 under the leadership of Sir Raymond Washington. <laughs> he wasn't a knight, but his name sounds really Is formal. his name, sir? No, I just oh, put yeah. it in there. Mm. Raymond Washington? Raymond Washington. He could be president. No. Nope, just started the Crips. All right, so he started the Crips, okay? Why? I don't know. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Coincidentally, the gang is believed to have recruited kids primarily from Washington High School. I don't really think that there's a connection there. I think it just happened to be that he lived in that area. Now, Washington High School's, like, school official color was blue, which many of you know coincides with the Crips, who would go on to adopt the color blue. And that's really like a part of their identity. It's believed that the Crips were quickly known as quite the public nuisance. All right. I don't know what level of nuisance we're talking about here in the early 70s, like if it was violent from the get-go or what. Like The Justice Department website doesn't go into detail, so it makes me think that it actually wasn't as violent because they have a lot more detail in terms of violent crimes as it progresses into the 80s. I think they were just like harassing a bunch of kids and just causing... A ruckus. It was the 60s, man. Yeah. Irregardless, they were viewed as enough of a threat that other gangs started springing up as a result. Literally just as a way for the kids in the community who were not affiliated with the Crips to defend themselves against the Crips in their community. Does that make sense? So it really did start with the Crips. And as a result of the Crips just being awful, it kind of birthed Los Angeles gangs, which is crazy. All right, so now in the 80s, like I said, that's when it got really bad. The inner city was born. And I mean, I'm sure it existed before, but there was a major migration in Los Angeles of rich bitches to the burbs. Affluent city folk packed up, opting for that white picket fence life, and those who couldn't afford the burbs were left in the cities. The economy was, like, really bad in the 80s, and I feel like every decade they say that. Like, the economy is just so bad, but it really was very, very bad in the 80s. Most of us know that there is a direct relation between economic instability in a community and the level of gang activity in that community. The reason why those two things correlate are, like, is one of two things. One, because people need money, okay? You join a gang because it's a job, even if it's an illegal job, like engaging in, in robberies of some sort or burglaries, or the, a lot of gangs work in drugs, right? Or two, I feel like when there is such economic instability and your family is on the, on the low end of the spectrum when it comes to income and whatever, when you're living in poverty, it's very easy to feel like an outcast in society, 
especially as a child, you know that you don't have a lot and when you go to school, the kids around you have more things than you. And a lot of kids, especially like young, younger teenagers, join gangs and this has been proven for some semblance of like belonging, like wanting to fit in very, very badly. Poverty or economic instability creates crime and where there's crime, you will get organized crime and a gang is an organized crime unit. Mm-hmm. Like there's plenty of people in the pandemic, right? When everyone lost their jobs, mm-hmm. started robbing sneaker stores and shit. But then gangs are like, that's a good way. That's a Look at that. That's a right, good way to make right. a bunch of money. Let's do that better. Let's figure out how to do that in a more organized way. Mm-hmm. Why do you think gangsters like have really sick cars and like wear a bunch of... They're, right. They're presenting like an advert... Money. For you joining the gang. So you take all that stuff and then you mix in some level of like frustration with their position in life, right? Like some sense of injustice, mm-hmm. which is like fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and no, and, uh, and where do you take that frustration out, right? Right. On the system that's fucking you yeah, over. Yeah, a bunch of hormonal kids. Yeah. The police that patrol the inner city in the 80s, a completely different style and type mm-hmm. of police person then they were patrolling the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And we also know the LAPD LAPD is like been corrupt for how long? It's the sheriff's department. Sheriff's department. Well, I mean, in the 90s especially, right? Like, yeah. And so we're talking like 70s, 80s. If they were corrupt as hell in the 90s, they were corrupt as hell in the 70s and 80s. And a lot of them were had gang affiliations. The East LA, LA district of the sheriff's department they all have matching tattoos. I know, they all do fucking weird ass gang shit about like murdering people. I know. It's okay, nuts. but also like if you, <laughs> if you, if you uh, are a policeman, we don't mean it. <laughs> we don't mean it. Not all cops are bad. No, not but, all cops are bad. But I like the mentality. It's very punk. You know, I dated a cop for half like a hot minute. Okay, so like I said, Mary Thompson's son Bo had formed and helped lead the Eugene sector of the Crips gang. He adopted the name Bishop, and Bishop was no Bo. Mary, who would share her memories of her once Cub Scout son, Bo, with high schools and organizations as she spread awareness, would juxtapose her son's early life with what it had inevitably become, a life of crime, in and out of trouble, and juvie. And it was this very reality that Mary Thompson would say inspired her to do everything she could to spread awareness and teach other kids and parents the dangers of gangs and rising gang activities in Eugene. And she was very well known in the community, even working with law enforcement and the gang task force. They were doing really good things in Eugene, so it was a natural progression for Aaron and his anti-gang activism to work alongside the gang mom. Now, I will say, I did read online that the Crips in Eugene was like a bunch of white kids. Yeah, I mean, I think I watched a documentary on, like, Crips in Alaska or Mm -hmm. some shit, and it was wild. In LA, it was a lot of impoverished people of color. In Eugene, it was really easy to see that these were bored, white, privileged kids starting a gang because they wanted to. Was it the same level of shit, though? Or were they, like, pretending? No, 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 no. It got real bad in Eugene. Like, real bad. It's really weird. It is really weird. It is really, really weird. They took took the brand. Yes, they 100% did. But they were bad, bad kids. Bo had been in so much trouble, okay? And Mary Thompson knew that in order to help her son, she also had to 
align her anti-gang activism with trying to help him and all of his friends because she knew that his friends meant the world to him. You know, when you're in a gang, you look out for the people in your gang. So her door was always open to any kid looking for refuge from the gangs that they'd found themselves in. If any street kid decided, you know what, not really digging this criminal life anymore, they knew that they could go to Thompson's home and she'd take them in with open arms. And Aaron was there at Mary's too, acting as a big brother to a lot of these young kids. So when police, working through Aaron's history and close circle, discovered that he had recently been arrested alongside a known gang member, they were really confused. And when they discovered that that known gang member was the gang mom's own gangster son, Bo Flynn, or Bishop, they were like, okay, what? So it turns out that Mary Thompson had actually asked Aaron to keep an eye on her son, Bo, or Bishop on the streets, with hopes that Aaron just might be able to keep Bo out of trouble. He had recently been released from a juvenile detention center after he was caught selling guns. He's 16 at this point. And Mary was like, Damn it, this child is going to put me in my grave, I swear for God. Now, Aaron, being the protective and compassionate kid that he was and who very much wanted to protect the kids in and his peers in Eugene, he was really happy to hang out with Bo and give him something or like anything to do other than be on the streets. Now, no matter how hard Aaron tried to keep Bo on the straight and narrow, Bo had other plans. He was wild. Just three weeks before Aaron was murdered, the two were hanging out together one afternoon when they ran into a group of teenagers, presumably rivals of Bo. And it wasn't long before an altercation between Bo and this group of teens took place, at which time Bo, Bo pulled out a knife and slashed one of those teens in the face. Now, because Aaron was right there next to Bo when the assault occurred, they were both arrested and thrown in jail. Some reports online also suggest that Aaron actually may have tried to take the fall for Bo. I did read that in one article. They were like, oh, Aaron was like, oh, it's my gun. It's my knife. Not gun. It's my knife. I did it. I did it. And police were like, okay. But as they talked to all the witnesses, everyone that was involved, it became pretty clear that Aaron had absolutely nothing to do with any gang activity. And he definitely was not at fault um, for Bo's actions that day. Police are like, Aaron, what are you doing, dude? You're 18. You're trying to take the fall for someone. You're going to be charged with assault with a deadly weapon. He's 16. He can go to juvie. You're going to go to prison. Like, do not take the fall for this kid when you don't have anything to do with it. You're a good kid. What you're doing in this community is good. Like, what are you thinking? Now, police had other plans, okay? They were like, hey, you know what? We know you didn't do anything wrong. And, uh... Now we feel like you're just, you know, obstructing justice. So your only way out of this is to testify against Bo when we inevitably take him to trial for assault with a deadly weapon. They're like, we need you to get this gangster off the streets. And you need immunity now because you did something bad. Bada bing, bada boom. And Aaron, being the good natured member of society that he was, decided, all right, fine, I'll work with the police. <laughs> I'll be a witness. It's not going to go down. It's the right, right thing to do. It's not going to go down very well. The trial was set to take place the following month in October, just three days after Aaron was gunned down in his bedroom. So, of course, police are like, bingo, motive. Bo Flynn was being held at a detention center awaiting that upcoming assault trial. So they obviously knew that he couldn't have been the one like one of the men in the bedroom that night because he's in juvie, okay? But it wouldn't be hard to believe that there was someone on the outside who would have done the job in his behalf. 
Whoa. Oh my, God. my brother sending me pictures of clothes. No, I swear I love these bitches. I'm a feminist. It's like a, a street designer. No. It's not good. No. Nothing with text on it. No. <laughs> Two on the nose. I'm glad he asked me about that before because, like, what the fuck? Imagine he wore that home. What would my mother say? I swear I love these bitches. I'm a feminist. She'll probably be fine with it because the sun shines out of his eyes. Yeah, that's true. Um, okay, so... Bo Flynn was being held at a detention center awaiting that upcoming assault trial. So police obviously knew that he could not have been one of the men in Aaron's bedroom that night. He didn't physically do he it. Was, he didn't physically pull the trigger or he wasn't the other guy. But he could have could have. But he a is the him. leader of the Crips yeah. in Eugene. They're like, are you kidding me? People would suck his big toe if he told them to. It's not far-fetched to think that he could have someone on the outside doing the dirty work for him because the trial is set to take place in three days. But they were buddies, right? Were they buddies? Yeah, I mean, yeah, they were. Like, they were buddies. They were hanging out. Also, Bo is 16. Like, he's not... He's not some macho dude. Yeah, he is the leader of the Crips (laughs) in Eugene. But he's a kid. Like, he's a kid. So police were like, well, if he didn't do it, he he had somebody else do it because... Even though he's a child, he doesn't want to spend a ton of time behind bars. He's got, like, gang shit to do. And they know that he's very, very notorious already. And he's always in trouble. And they're like, all right, dude, we know you did it. We're pointing our finger right at you. Fess up, bro. And he's like, yeah. Is this quotes? No, not a direct quote. Mm. And he's like, yeah, I know, Aaron. But no, I didn't have him killed. Sorry about it. Bye. Also not a direct quote. I believe him. No matter how hard police pushed, Bo was adamant. He was not involved in Aaron's murder. With literally nothing else to go on, police were forced to look elsewhere. Now, if you're wondering if Mary Thompson was aware that police were looking into her son for Aaron's murder, she was. Police had gone to her, seeing as she not only was Bo's mother, but also had relationships with a lot of the gangsters in town. Unfortunately for police, she had zero information either, but was not surprised that Bo was a person of interest given his extensive violent history. Now, before police could lose any hope about solving Aaron's murder, rumors started flying around throughout the youths of this society. (laughs) Now, this is what happens when you're a gang member, but you're also a child. You run your mouth too much and you brag. So people were talking and the word on the street as police were conducting their investigations and their interviews was that two known Crips members had been bragging their asses off about killing Aaron Itura. Well, what's the point in killing someone if you don't get the cachet, right? Especially when you're like a junior in high school. Yeah, especially if you're in like a gang, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's like a rite of passage. Right. Not just... In gangs like the Crips and the Bloods, but also like in the Mafia, right? Like your first kill, your first Mm -hmm, whatever. mm -hmm. So like, yeah, how is a teenager going to keep that inside? And if these kids are, in fact, behind Aaron's murder, which we will find out, Mm. it would make Aaron Itora's, Itora's murder... The very first gang killing in the city of Eugene, Oregon. So they didn't do it. They're just taking credit for it. We'll see. (laughs) So, these kids, their names were Jim Elstad and Joseph Brown. (laughs) 
that's how you know you're dealing with the them white folk. Now, Joseph Brown, or Crazy Joe Brown, as he was known on the streets. That's good. That's a good name. Yeah. I don't think he was white, but Jim Elstead definitely was. I looked at him. They were both minors, too. At least Joe Brown was. He was just 17 years old. So again, they're children, but they're teenagers. Okay, regardless, both of them are teenagers. Now, police set their sights on the bragging duo, making plans for one hell of an interrogation. But before they could even track them down, they got a call from the gang mom who told police, oh, whoops, I totally forgot to mention that uh, two kids came by here the morning after Aaron's murder, claiming that they killed him. And it was a whole thing, but I don't believe them anyway, so I didn't say anything. And oh, yeah, their names are Jim Elstad and Joe Joe Brown. Brown. Crazy Joe Brown. And police are like, okay, and why didn't you tell us this already? And she's like, I mean, I told you. I just didn't believe them. I know these kids. They're troubled, but they're children. And I'm like, yeah, okay, you killed him. Sure. And police are like, all right, that's weird. Gang mom, who works with the gang task force, wouldn't think to divulge information like that to authorities when they interviewed her. They were not dumb, obviously, and they started preparing for the potential revelation that Mary had been protecting these teenagers because she's always trying to help the kids in the neighborhood. Now, police brought the teens in for an interview. Jim Elstad and Crazy Joe Brown were interrogated ruthlessly. Still, they maintained their innocence until they failed their polygraph tests. And this is 1994, so let's remember this. In 1994, a polygraph is like God himself coming down from the heavens and declaring whether you're innocent or guilty, right? Is that right? I thought it was always a little suspect. No, it was never yeah. suspect. They Police so heavily relied. That's why a lot of the wrongful convictions are based in part on polygraph tests in the 90s. It was their go-to. It was their absolute go-to. The sad thing is that they were interrogating a lot of those people like hours after a murder took place, right? When everyone's nerves are all over the place. And a lot of people were getting wrongfully accused of crimes they didn't commit because they were failing polygraphs. Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing to remember, right? Is a polygraph does not measure if you're lying. It can't tell if you're lying. It can't tell if you're you're stressed. Mm -hmm. It's essentially a stress test. And whether or not you're sitting there and the way you respond to stress is completely different and it varies from person to person. Right. That's true. Yes. Somebody could be telling the absolute truth. There was like one case I was listening to the other day where they said they got his name wrong. He's, they asked him what his name was and it came up as deceptive. I remember when we were at university, mm-hmm. some guy tried to mug us. Right on the street, just came up to us with a knife and was like, Give me your money. And there's three of us one hit, so we were like, Fuck off. But then <laughs> we went back to the house and we called the police, right? Because we were like, What if he goes and does it to like an old lady? Yeah. Right? So we were like, Trying to do the right Wait, thing. I'm sorry. You can't just roll over something like that. What? After you said, Fuck off, what did he do? Was he like, Oh man, and just walked away? No. <laughs> he like kicked rocks? He sort of gave us a little verbal shit and we gave him a little verbal shit. What do you say? I can't. Dude. I've never heard this story. Well, you can hear it now if you stop interrupting me. This is so exciting. So we went back to the house. We decided the right thing to do is call the police in case he like actually mugs an old lady or hurts an old lady. So then 
we call the police, but we're like a little drunk, right? So we call the police and like chit-chatting, whatever, then talking to the police, tell them what happens. Then like three months later, they're like, you have to go to court to get this guy off the streets. This guy's a bad guy. He's had like so many things like this, but he has a really good lawyer. He keeps getting off. Like we know this guy and we need you guys to help us get him like off the streets. So then we go to court. And Shut they, up! They call us as witnesses. Shut up! And then up. his lawyer plays the voice recording of us being like pretty drunk and calling the police, <laughs> and we're all like, ah, yeah, this guy tried to us. And they're like, these guys aren't credible. And then, and then, <laughs> and then he was like, my client witnessed these three guys smoking a marijuana cigarette, and it wasn't true. I was smoking Rollies, right? Because I was broke, as a broke art student. And the guy got off. Oh my and so, so, even on the witness stand, when the lawyer was grilling me, I was like laughing because when I get really nervous, <laughs> I laugh. Yeah. And that just made it worse. Yeah. Like, that just made it me way less credible. Listen, it's like when my sister and I would get in trouble as kids, my dad would come in and yell at us. Kelly and I couldn't look at each other because we would bust out laughing. It was so bad. And there are so many times where my dad would come in and yell at us and we'd both be looking at him like this. And then everybody would start laughing. I think it's like when you're confronted. Did you just compare me going to court <laughs> to you being told off by your dad? I just mean to you, say. You were like, it's just like this No, time. I just mean I just mean to say like when you are confronted with authority and you're very innocent or whatever, like naive, innocent, whatever. You have nothing to hide. Being confronted like by someone really aggressively can it like can trigger something in your brain that's like this nervous reaction of being like, what the hell? And you laugh. I think that's a very natural reaction. The, the whole thing ruined my belief in the justice system. Mm-hmm. Like ruined it. Yeah, you were very wronged. I was like, there's no point in this. Because if someone just has the money to hire a slick asshole lawyer, they can make anyone look like an Obviously, asshole. the guy was not that dangerous because you told him to fuck off and he ran away. He didn't run away. We Whatever. Just, he's, he went away. Well, he he slinked away. Yeah, but he, the, the police knew him. The, the policeman guy was like, this guy has got a lot of things like this. Like, he does this a lot. It's like, yeah, he's not like a mass murderer, but like he's still robbing people on the street. He's not doing a very good job. Well, he couldn't take three art students, which is like... If there was two of us, he probably could have taken us, but there's three of us. And you guys were drunk, so you're probably like, what the hell? Yeah, yeah. That's hilarious, babe. I've never heard that story. You've never told me that story. Also, I cannot believe you went to court and you were called. Oh, we were the witnesses. Witness. Yeah. We were the star witnesses and we Shut fucked it up. up. And the, the policeman guy, who was really nice, he was really disappointed. <laughs> he was like, God he was like, damn it, boys. Fucking students. <laughs> Did they ever get the guy? Did you ever follow up? No, I don't know. What was his name? I have no idea. Oh, my God. Dude, I was what like... What the hell kind of witness are you? I You're was, the worst witness. I was 18. So you don't remember the guy who you got called to be a star witness in that his case? That was more than half of my life ago. So? So? How am I going to remember that shit? Because <laughs> you were the star witness for the prosecution? Lot. Do you know how much shit I've put into my body since then. I love thinking of you as being like a young British boy in a British court with British people everywhere. (laughs) I feel like it's something I've seen on television. 
I don't think anyone would want to see that on television. It wasn't that interesting. I just, no, it's not because all British crimes are not that interesting. The fuck are you talking about? There's like a whole, you know, that whole Reddit thread of like the most British crimes ever, and it's the most innocent, sweet, like, like kind-natured crimes of yeah, all but time. That's curated. There's some fucked up English shit. There's just a, there's just a lot of knife people. Well, yeah, there's no guns. Go to LA. You people are animals. <laughs> go to LA. What do you mean, go to LA? I live in LA. Well, go to I've like downtown. LA longer than you. Go down, downtown and stand on the corner and I've see what happens. I've been to downtown more times than you've been mm-hmm. to downtown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. It's scary down there. No, it's not. Mm. Once you've been through what I've been through <laughs> with a guy trying to mug you. Who walked away Epsom, after you told him to fuck off. <laughs> yeah. Once you've been through the fire that I've been through. Oh my God. I can't believe scary. they paid, played the the recording of your guys' police call. Dude, it was so fucking embarrassing. <laughs> it was so like mortifying. That's probably why you started laughing. And he's like, why did you, why were you guys laughing on the phone? Why did you say this, Mr. Davey? Why did you do this? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot believe that. Also, the police, uh, the police officer is probably sitting in the stands just like. Wow. He that's, put all of his trust in you. That's his mistake. Yeah, he should not have trusted you. <laughs> yeah. You'd be a much w- better witness today, babe. All right, so after they failed their polygraph tests, also really quick, in 1994, people also didn't know that they could, like, say no to a polygraph, you know? Could they in 1984? I think 1994. I think you can yeah, always before. say no, but if you said no in 1994, it's like, oh, you're guilty, clearly. Well, I still feel that way. I feel like if you say no to a polygraph... No. Everyone's like, mm, my ad- what are you no, hiding? My advice is if you ever get accused of something, do not take a polygraph. That is my advice to every single person. But do not take a polygraph. When, and also, nowadays, lawyers don't let their clients take polygraphs. When they take you to court, they, mm-hmm. they'll the prosecutor will say, like, and they refuse to take a polygraph. No, they can't because you can't talk about the polygraph in court. Oh, really? All it does, you can't, it's, it's inadmissible. All it does is... If you fail that polygraph, all it does is make police focus on you and nobody else. What if you nail it, though? Well, then you're a psychopath. What if you're like David Blaine, you can control your... If you nail it and you're guilty, then you're a psycho. But if you nail it and you're not guilty, then that's the point. If I was a criminal, I would definitely buy a polygraph Mm -hmm. machine and then just like do a bunch of practice, you know? I think I could ace a polygraph. Even if I was guilty. Of course you do. I'm an actress. You're a psychopath. Yeah, that too. I just wanted to make it clear that it, this is different times. You can't say no to a polygraph in 1994. Police wouldn't let you. They'd be like, what? 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 You know? Nowadays, they're like, fuck. All right, fine. Go home. Truly. So they take their polygraph tests and they fail miserably. Now... When they were confronted with that failed polygraph test result, they acted as, as exactly how you'd expect children caught doing something bad and lying about it to act, okay? They crumbled and they confessed. Did they cry? I'm sure they did. No. They're like 17. According to the teens, Jim and Joe entered the Atora house, made their way to Aaron's bedroom, shook him to make sure he was sleeping, which he was, but shaking him woke him up, obviously, and as he began to stir, it's not funny, as he began to stir, suddenly, Jim Elstad pulled his gun and put a bullet in his head, like the evil little shit that he is. 
When police questioned their motive, like, why the hell did you do this? They said it was simple. It was retribution for Aaron agreeing to testify against their boy, Bo. But they really had acted independently from Bo and from the Crips. They took it upon themselves to right what they viewed as a wrong, a.k.a. Aaron helping to put Bo away. Showing some initiative. That's right. With that, the boys were arrested, and police finally thought that they could give Aaron's family and friends, and of course Aaron, the justice they all so desperately mm. deserved. But uh, we're not at the end of this story, babe. Oh, no, no, no. Because in the midst of all of this going down, Janice... Atora, Aaron's mom, received a phone call one afternoon. And this poor woman, in all of her grief, was confronted by none other than the gang mom herself, who so casually told her that her slain son may still be alive if he, quote, had just kept his mouth shut. Oh, no. Is this like a gang mom is secretly a gangster story? And Janice was like, um, bitch, what? Not a direct quote. Now, when they brought Mary Thompson back in for questioning, because obviously Janice went to police with that, she was shocked. And she told authorities, like, this woman, this woman just called me and said this, like, out of nowhere. And police already had growing suspicions about Mary Thompson because of the fact that she had those two boys who said that they killed Aaron and didn't she didn't say anything to police because this woman was working very closely with the gang task force. That was her thing. She would give them tips all the time. And she was like, it's not them. She was like, oh, the reason I didn't tell you that is because they're they're children. Like, what are you talking about? They're kids. So initially they were like, is she covering for them or something? Maybe she is. She's just the evil mom. She started the Crips. (laughs) So... (laughs) Um, they, they are like, okay, moms, gang mom, what the F are you up to? All right. They brought her back in for questioning, like I said, but she assured police that there was nothing more to her statement other than her anger for Aaron testifying against her son, the same son that he swore to protect. And that also that betrayal had led to his murder and that everybody had lost in this giant situation. It was just all so sad. And police were like, yeah, okay. We don't believe you, but just go because we can't keep you here without any evidence. But you're a lying liar and goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Not a direct quote. That's a direct quote. (laughs) I wish. That's how the police talk. I wish. In fact, police were so sure that there was more to Thompson at this point that they got a warrant to put a wiretap on her phone. And what they uncovered was shocking. Oh my God, they're on the wire. It's the string a bell situation. I know. Bo Flynn, an assumed, the assumed leader of the Crips gang in Eugene, was not the head of the operation at all. Oh my god, this is a, such a plot line. I know. This is like, this is actually a season of Justified. I'm amazed that a movie has not been made the, of this story. The, uh, TV shows have ripped this story off like a oh, thousand Oh times. yeah, a thousand times. But yes, it was his mother, the gang mom, who ruled the kids of the Crips it's from the, the very top. Her nickname is the yeah. gang mom. Yeah. So stupid. Well, she was able to put up a really good front. I'll explain a little bit. So they all reported to her. All the kids were her gangsters, okay? She ran the Crips in Eugene. 
Every gang-related crime went through Thompson, and she was, in most cases, calling the shots and collecting her piece of the pie, the biggest piece, along the way. If the gang committed a robbery, she collected. And in lots of the cases, she'd help with a cover-up after the fact. So she would pick them up, or she would drive them to, or she would help conceal uh, evidence. She would help them dispose of weapons, whatever. She was doing the whole damn shebang, while simultaneously working with the gang task force as a way to conceal her true nature, which was a straight-up gangster. And also doing, like, seminars at high schools, talking with families. And she did this for years. That's that's definitely some string of bells. It's crazy. Her past was full of criminal activity. And that she so easily kept from her peers and her community all of that past criminal activity that it was absolutely like mind-blowing to police when they went to the gang task force and told them what they'd found out the gang task force was like what the hell are you talking about this woman is our ally we worked directly with her she was basically like an employee it was crazy And everybody felt so betrayed. And you know what happens when you betray the police? They get really, really pissed off, all right? Now, the police dug real deep into her past. And they were able to uncover all of her previous ties to gangs. She was in a motorcycle gang. She actually ended up, like, (laughs) accusing a rival gang. She was in, like, that big motorcycle gang, the main one. The the. The Hells Angels? I don't think she was in that one, but I think she accused members. I think she accused members of one of those big rival ones of like assault, like sexual assault. Um, because she was in a rival motorcycle gang. So she took them like all the way to court. She like it was crazy. Like she was a nut job. And also, she was heavily involved with the drug trade. She was like manufacturing and selling tons of meth. That's some biker shit, though. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. She was in a biker gang. And then she had moved to Eugene and basically adopted this lifestyle of anti-gang activism. My son is a gangster, blah, blah, blah. She's on the inside, dude. On the inside. And because she had maintained a very strong facade, and she was, like, dedicated, right? She really, like, went hard with this anti-gang thing. Nobody would ever suspect her. And... It was like, oh, the reason my door is always open to these gangsters is I'm helping them. In the meantime, it's her gang. She yeah. is the leader of the Crips. I guess, like, it's something I thought about earlier and I didn't ask it, but, like, what does an anti-gang community member do? Well, she was going to high schools. She was doing speeches, like, talking to kids. So, like, when I remember when I was in high school, the big thing was drunk driving, right? Because there was a really bad accident at my high school years before I'd ever gone there when three girls were killed by a drunk driver. And Uh it created this huge thing in Aurora about like constantly reminding kids like the dangers of drunk driving. And every year we would have like seminars where like those kids' parents or whatever would come and talk or like people, law enforcement, whatever. And it was like this thing, like you knew that it was going to be like a drunk driving seminar. It was a thing. So in this community where, like, gang activity was rising, the kids at the high school, they would bring her in and she would talk about, like, what to look for, how to avoid being, like, recruited, like, what you can do and, like, all this stuff. So she was like, gangs are bad. Don't join gangs. 
do you like gangs? Yeah. See me after this. <laughs> See me after this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's like, don't join the gang, but if you want to, come on by I think you are a gangster. I'll tell you about it privately. Just come over. We can talk about it in my home. I will I will tell you why you should not, <laughs> wink, join the gang. No, but she was, because she was so involved in, like, the schools and, the like, all these, like, type of, like, YMCA-adjacent programs, right? That's what she was doing. Youth enrichment through gang awareness. She was making people aware of gangs by yes. putting them in gangs. But she had to fully dedicate herself to that in order to keep her charade going. It's very smart. It's very smart. Mm-hmm. And it worked. She was trusted by everybody. She was trusted by law enforcement. She was trusted by her community, her peers. She was trusted by the high schools and the, the parents. Like She was trusted by everybody. Everybody. On those tapes, it became very crystal clear that Mary Thompson was definitely not only involved in Aaron's murder, but that she had ordered the hit on Aaron herself. And then she even used his murder as a threat to other gangsters, these kids, like for like subsequent unrelated crimes. So when they like pushed back at her, she they police were listening to her being like, you don't want to end up like Aaron, do you? Like, like a psycho. Yeah. Like an absolute psycho. Good. Yeah, it was crazy. And she was, the amount of control she had over these teenagers was evident within like minutes of listening to her wire, to her wiretap. Like, it was constant all day long. That's all she was doing was controlling all of the criminal activity in Eugene. It was wild. Horrified, authorities were more motivated than ever to put this woman where where she belonged, right? Behind bars. She was arrested and all three murder conspirators were tried for the murder of Aaron and Tora. For their guilty pleas, Jim and Joe were sentenced to 16 years and 10 years respectively. And in 1996, two years after Aaron Atora's life was so viciously ended, Thompson was sentenced to life in prison for orchestrating his murder. Unfortunately, for Aaron's family and for those who loved him, a legal loophole allowed Thompson's sentence to be minimized to just 25 years. She was released in 2019 after serving only 23 years. That's a long time. It's not a long time at all. So the legal loophole is (laughs) this. That is a long time. Oh, it is? You think? 20, what? 23. 23 years for murdering an 18-year-old kid? She didn't murder him. She she well, you know that that's worse. You know that people who <laughs> hire people to murder get more time than the people that do the murder. It's still a long time. You, here you go again. This, this debate. <laughs> this debate. <laughs> so the legal loophole is: she was initially charged and tried for aggravated murder. Okay. Aggravated murder, because it was a murder in order to prevent justice in the assault with a deadly weapon case against her son. That's the aggravated part? Yes. But because Bo's assault with a deadly weapon was a juvenile, a minor, like a crime committed by a minor, that's actually not like as serious as an adult committing that crime. So her defense lawyers worked really hard to find this loophole. And they were like, wait a second, Bo was a minor. It was a juvenile case. That's actually not an aggravated case. Therefore, she shouldn't have been tried for aggravated murder. Bo? Bo had nothing to do with it. 
it was because she ordered the hit in order to prevent him from testifying oh. in Bo's case. Mm. But Bo and Bo's case was considered not aggravated. Yes. And so that then affected her charge and her defense lawyers were like, we found it. We found the loophole. They took it back to the legal system and the legal system had to had to abide by that law because that's the law in Oregon. And it's really sad because to this day, Aaron's mother has been lobbying and working with lawmakers in Eugene to get that law apprehended, not apprehended, amended. Yes. Or at least to get it amended in a way Mm. that it wouldn't be. The woman was supposed to be in prison for the rest of her life without parole. She's already out. And she's like, what the F? What the F happened here? You murdered my son. You were supposed to be put away for the rest of your life. And you're out. You're out. And to this day, 2022, she's still working to get that law amended. What's Mary doing? No, there's no word on her. But Bo went to jail uh, again as an adult recently, I think. Like, I was re- reading an article. I think he went to jail, like, 2016 or something for guns charges or something. So he's still living his life being crazy. And... Yeah, that's the story of the gang mom and the first ever gang murder in Eugene, Oregon. So she was, like, smart because she went, like, undercover. But she wasn't smart enough to control her own her son, who, like, surely the even better cover would be if he was, like, super straight-laced. I just have to, I have to wonder, Bo had to have known that that went down. What went down? Like, that murder. He was like, I had nothing to do with it. But, like, there's no way he didn't know that his mom ordered the hit. I don't know. She seems like a real sociopath. Yeah. So maybe she didn't tell him. Yeah. That's crazy. That really does seem like a TV show. Like, just a justified. I scene. was like, when I, listened, when I read the story, I was like, wait a second. This is wild. Like, this is super wild because it's, so, it's almost corny. Like, it's almost corny yeah. in a way. Well, the whole of the first season of Justified, Walton Goggins is pretending to be, like, the local preacher, even though he has a criminal past. Yeah. To, like, gain everyone's trust. Mm-hmm. But he's really doing, like, sick Walton Goggins yeah. things. So, like, it's it does read very much like a In this, script. It's yeah. Got a twi- it's got a major plot twist. Yeah, in this case, it's, like, a less than middle-aged, very normal, semi-suburban white mom in Eugene, Oregon... Literally running a group of teenage Crips members. It's wild. I really do feel like I've seen that in like nine movies. And I almost feel like she was part of those biker gangs. And it was there was like the thrill. Like it was like she came here and she realized, oh, I can be in charge of this gang now. And I can make money off of these kids. Or she's just a shit person and she found saw an opportunity and she took it. Yeah, I mean it's all about money, I think, with for her. And power. And power. Yeah. Because there were like um, the, oh, I forgot to even tell you. So the girl, (laughs) the girl who called, remember the night that Aaron was murdered? The girl who called, her name was Lisa. She was also in the gang. She actually ended up cooperating with police because after police got like very close to arresting Thompson, they were like, let's just talk to all the gang members and see if any of them will flip. Lisa flipped, explained that... Aaron's, or not Aaron's mom, sorry. Bo's mom, Mary Thompson, the gang mom, ordered the hit. She was in charge of the Crips. She, like, laid it all out for them. And she was like, 
I called to find out if he was home. She got immunity. And the whole thing was basically we were all told we had to do this. Like this was something we had to do as retribution for Aaron speaking out well, against to, her son. To stop him. from First to so. stop him. Yeah. But it was like for her, it wasn't even to stop him. It was retribution. Like you wronged us. You know, that was the right thing to do. You had to get him because not like, oh, we don't want, it obviously had something to do with that. But like that very gang type mentality is like, you wronged us, you die. Right. Yeah. So Lisa was the one who was on the phone and she explained everything for police. So all the missing pieces she laid out and was like, oh, yeah, no, Mary Thompson runs everything. We're all in it. We're all a part of it. And like Lisa was like, there's a book on this case. There's a book written about this case. It was initially a Reader's Digest article. The Reader's Digest article, the story was really big in Oregon, but the Reader's Digest article was huge. It was really well written. Everybody loved it. And so the guy who wrote the Reader's Digest article ended up writing a book Mm. on this called Evil Mom, like, or something like that. It's not a good title. Yeah, I think it's literally called The Evil Mom. Or Shut up. I swear. It's called Evil Mom. <laughs> like the true story of Mary Thompson. Her name's Mary Thompson, too. But in that book, he talks a lot about Lisa and how, like, he tells a lot about her side of the story. Not her side of the story necessarily, but kind of how she found her way into the gang. And it was, she just didn't kind of fit in. She liked things that kids her age didn't. She found her way into that gang kind of by happenstance. And it had a lot to do with, like, they were kids, so, like, she liked the way they dressed better. And, like, it was just, like, very surface level whatever. And that just all, all of that just shows how easy it was for Mary to manipulate them because they were freaking kids. Right. They were kids. They were high schoolers. They were children. That was a good story. Yeah. It's wild, right? That had a great plot twist. I'm just amazed that there's no movie on this or like a really corny Ryan probably, Murphy TV show. It probably is. It's so on the nose. Did you look it up? Yeah, there's nothing. Mm. There's a book, but it's so on the nose. It's it's cheesy. It's actually cheesy. Yeah, but well, that's okay. Because you're just like, are you kidding? Like, are you joking? This woman, like, this this anti activist. You could definitely do that. It's like based on a true story. Blah blah blah. On Lifetime. Good stuff. Cool. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please leave us a review. Rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast. I mean, we're available everywhere. I know a lot of people tune in on on Spotify. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Uh, I don't have Spotify. I'm not a Spotify girl. She doesn't know how to use it. I don't. It's really sad. I'm like an old lady when it comes to Spotify. I can't figure it out. That's how I feel about TikTok. Well, I also don't really know how to use that either. I still post on there, though. Um, you guys can follow us on Instagram. It's our first and last names. It's down in the show notes. And you can also support the show down in the show notes as well. And we'll be back very soon with our bonus, What You Missed, in the month of October. I think we're going to do a What You Missed on the Night of Halloween special. Are we? Because then that throws out any of my stories. No, no, no. I think we're going to do both. Okay. Because some weird shit happened in Hall- on ones? Halloween. Yeah, like really weird shit. Right. There was also some really dark stuff that happened to like the the Korean tragedy of like the... Oh yeah, everyone got crushed? Yes. Let's keep it light. Yeah, let's keep it light because there were some really bad things that happened. Yeah. and Which is awful, obviously, not to ignore it, but we got to keep it a little bit lighter because... 
I'd like to have some fun sometimes. Sometimes it's good to have some fun. All your stories and are make really fun sad. of criminals, right? Make we gotta make fun of criminals because they're dumb, um, and not talk about all the awful things in the world. But um, there are tons of awful things in the world. The world is awful. The world is awful. Anyways, what's not awful is the fact that you listened to this episode and we love you for it. Uh, go rate and review. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.